Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on DubLab. And today, it's such a pleasure to be joined by philanthropist, journalist, investor, cosmonaut, and so many other things, Esther Dyson. At the front row of many revolutions, Esther is currently leading the way in the healthcare space as the executive founder of Wellville, an open source nonprofit 10 year project ending in 2024, which is rethinking the American healthcare industry for people rather than profit. As an authority in tech since the 80s, Esther ran the newsletter release 1.0 or 1.0 for 25 years, which delivered prescient insight about the business and its social impact to entrepreneurs, investors, and analysis. And beyond that, there are just too many projects, professions, and positions to count. For Esther, the connecting thread is being an activist for positive change in this world. So Esther, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And uh, what I'm really doing is about health, not health care, because health is an asset we have and it gives us resilience and capacity and health care is basically a repair business. So I'm trying to make health care unnecessary more than I am to change it. I'm, I'm trying to just keep people healthier and that, that really goes more to the conditions in which they live rather than whether or not they have access to a doctor. I love that. There's something you said which I love, which is health should be about maintenance rather than repair. Exactly. And it's it's an asset you invest in instead of renting it. And so many of us just rent it. And then when anything bad happens, we have no assets to fight it with. And that's what's happened to so many people with COVID over the last year or two. And I'm not here to be gloomy, but i uh, <laughs> Just wanted to make that point. Thank yeah, you. no, I think it's an incredibly important point to make. And has COVID actually given you any insights about how we operate from a health perspective or maybe don't operate so effectively? It certainly has. I mean, it's it's a huge stress test and a catastrophe for so many people who weren't prepared. But the other thing worth noting about COVID is that in a way it's a it's kind of a general release. If things aren't great, you no longer need to blame them on something you did or didn't do. You can just sort of say COVID and then you can go and fix them without needing to apologize or to acknowledge that you made a mistake. So in some ways, for all its tragedy, COVID makes positive change easier. I mean, not everybody's going to take advantage of that, but it's it's actually interesting to see you know, if you throw the system up and have it fall down and reassemble again, chances are people will have learned something and they'll reassemble it slightly better. At least that's my hope. And disruption does that. It is, of course, a challenge to the system, but at the same time, it lets you take advantage of what you learned without needing to apologize for the past. And there's a lot to apologize for in the U.S.'s past. and In its present as well. Yes, yeah. So we met originally at DLD, Digital Life Design, in I think it was 2015, 2014, oh 2015, yeah. I know. And I was presenting this music dementia research, philanthropic research project. And I remember it very well. It was the end of this talk that I was incredibly nervous about giving and Steffi, the wonderful organizer of, of DLD, came up and said, oh, Esther reached out and wanted to meet. And we had this 
lovely conversation and you told me that Oliver Sacks, who of course had inspired a lot of that project, was a you know dear family friend of yours. That was the beginning of our friendship and then I later on had a wonderful conversation with your father about music and the brain. Yes. I mean, I have to say he was a friend of my father's. I didn't know him, but this conversation is taking place on Father's Day, which is kind of interesting because a, a lot of what I'm thinking about is how the long term, you know, thinking about the past, acknowledging it, thinking about the future, having a long time frame rather than sort of a short, addictive, short term craving approach to life is important. And that means you need to acknowledge your ancestors and We'll talk about my grandfather later. And you know, people like Oliver Sacks, who are gone, in order to think about the ones who are coming that we need to leave a better world for. Wonderful. So yes, that was how it started. And since then, we've met in many different parts of the world. I think the last time we had a chat, which was over FaceTime, you broke into a playground and took a ride down a slide. Yes. <laughs> I have not really plans yet, but I have a domain name and a, a title for my next book, which is going to be called Present Without Leave. Life is so much more interesting when you see the dress rehearsal rather than the finished performance. I completely agree. And is being really present something that is important to you? Because I imagine that's also the meaning of the book title. Well, it's that, and but it's it's more... You know, don't wait until someone asks you or hires you. Just show up and mm. see what you can do. And that's what I did in most of my jobs. I last got hired back in 1982. I have this advice, which is obviously only for people who are privileged enough to do this, but never do anything you wouldn't do for free and then try and get paid for it. And I bought this newsletter from my boss. And then when I sold it, I just found useful things to do without too much worrying about getting paid. You know, if you get paid enough in one thing, you can go do other things. And that's what this Wellville tenure project is. It's uh, it's something I funded rather than something that funds me. And we we work in five communities and we don't have contracts with them. We're not forced to stay. We do because we feel useful. We did leave one community when they didn't seem to want our advice. And in the same way, they don't need to pay for advice, nor do they need to listen to it. So it really makes us endeavor to give them advice that's useful or they won't pay attention. And so much of charity is about paying people to do something the donor thinks is good. And then people get paid to do stuff they think is useless, but they're getting paid, so they do it. And that way you, you rarely build up sustainable local capacity. You support people, but you don't actually help them build anything of their own that's sustainable. Mm. Well, because the intent from the beginning has a different agenda or motive. It's well-meaning, but it, it's not well-informed. Mm. I mean, there's so many bad business models, and, and the business model of much of philanthropy is, I'd say, wrong in that way. Philanthropy means empowering people, not employing them. I love that. And we're going to talk a lot more about Wellville and what you're doing with these five communities. But to start with, this is called Orange Juice for the Years. It's taken from a line by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep that really goes. The line is, music can lift us out of a depression. It can move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. 
And I just want to know, Esther, what does that quote mean to you? Well, it means two things. One, it also recalls to mind the wonderful line in the book by Abraham Verghese. His book's called Cutting for Stone, and it's too wonderful to describe here. But at one point, the medical professor says, what medical remedy or you know, what cure, what care is best delivered to the ear? And the answer is words of comfort. And sounds of comfort would have been an even better answer. And uh, Steve Jobs talks about a bicycle for the mind. And I think orange juice for the ear has the same resonance. And what else is a tonic in your life? I know we mentioned it briefly at the beginning. You love swimming. Yeah. Do you swim every day? Yes, I swim every day for 50 minutes. And I use the time for thinking, which is orange juice for the mind or whatever you want to call it. It's just wonderful because you know, pretty much whatever you're dealing with, whether you're trying to decide what to say in a speech or how to give somebody bad news or you know, what to write about or what you're going to do on a particular trip or a meeting, if you can't really wrestle it to the ground after 50 minutes, it's, it's probably something bigger than that, like somebody died. But just 50 minutes in the pool with nothing to write on, you can't take notes, nobody's interrupting you or sending you message notifications. It's really great. Do you ever find that that time is actually a time when you don't think? Is it ever just that it's sort of a meditation in a way for you? You know, I know I should say yes, but the truth (laughs) is basically no. I mean, I try to just listen to the water and so forth sometimes, but easily something interrupts. I mean, the good thing is when I can't sleep at night, I often also think really useful stuff. I don't sit there worrying about sleeping. Doing this book, Present Without Leave, became more concrete in a couple of hours of sleeplessness. Got it. Well, it's like a different kind of thinking in a way, though. There's more clarity and less anxiety because you can definitely have a lot of thinking that is almost unproductive, really. Yes. It's just that it's uninterrupted. Now, if I'm sitting here working, I can always get up and there's stuff on the floor. I could put it away or I could wash the dishes or whatever. But if you're in the pool or in bed, it's like, no, you can just really keep going through whatever you're thinking about. So now, first orange juice question for you, Esther. What was the first song that imprinted on you? So I had a somewhat unusual childhood, and we had we had music in the house because my grandfather is a composer, but not a lot of records. And I went and lived in England with another family when I was 13 for a year. I took the tube to school. It was just two stops, but it was the tube. And there was this Beatles song, She's Got a Ticket to Ride, which I've since discovered wasn't really about riding the tube. <laughs> but anyway, that was the first song that, and the Beatles themselves, just that was when I first kind of became part of that teenage song and album and Beatles culture. And I just loved She's Got a Ticket to Ride. So that's number one. Wonderful. Well, now we're going to take a listen to She's Got a Ticket to Ride by the Beatles. And this is Esther's song that first imprinted on her. And 
And that was She's Got a Ticket to Ride by the Beatles, the song that Esther chose as the first track that imprinted on her. And you described being in London, you were there age 13 for the year and hearing that for the first time. Was that the first time you'd heard the Beatles? No, I think I'd heard them before, but it just, this is the one I remember. So I was in the pool trying to think, well, what can I, what is really sort of the song that kind of resonated with me? And that's what I came up with in the pool. What did it make you feel? What did it conjure up? And you said you had this memory of riding the tube. Where were you going? What were the stops? What was your destination stop? Well, usually it was between Woodford Green and Loughton, but a few times I used to ride into London, not very often because we were kids and we mostly stayed at home, but going into London, Oxford Circus, Tottenham Court Road, the whole central line. Once I was, believe it or not, on the Dick Clark show, because my school, Latin County Grammar School for Girls, I was part of their team that was competing in this quiz show. So we went to the studios in Wimbledon and things, and it was a song about my experience writing the London Tube. And you know, it was a song about I was now a teenager. I was now identifying with other teenagers, which I hadn't done at home in the U.S., and seemed to be my song. And so you were born in Switzerland to an English-born, later American physicist, Freeman Dyson, and Swiss-American mathematician, Verena Huber Dyson. That's correct, but she was, she was Swiss. I mean, my parents were Europeans when I was born, which complicated things because I was stateless until I was 13. And the, the Swiss said, it depends who your father is. And the British said, well, he's the bastard child of an Englishman born abroad. We don't need you. Wow. But the Americans will take anybody in the end. So at least if they're white Europeans. And uh, yeah, I was born in Switzerland. They moved to the U.S. They had met in the U.S., went back to Europe, then they moved to the U.S., and that's where I grew up. And what was home life like? I mean, to say idiosyncratic or eccentric might be an understatement, I imagine. Well, it seemed very normal to us, my brother and me, but our parents were both academics at the Institute for Advanced Study, which is where Oppenheimer was. And so we took it for granted that everybody around us was white, not necessarily American. There were Turks and Japanese and Chinese and Russians and French people and so forth. Two Nobel Prize winners were neighbors. And it was only when I came back from London and I was 14 years old that I really understood that most people didn't have three months off in the summer like my parents. So I was pretty sheltered from the real world, though I certainly was exposed to a very exciting intellectual world. And you talked about there being a lot of music in the house. I know you didn't have a television. Um, describe the kind of music that was playing, that was your background uh, accompaniment. So when I was going to sleep, the air conditioning ducts in the house were arranged so that I got basically air from the living room. And my father and mother would be playing the violin and the piano sometimes in the evening. So I would hear that. Again, that just seemed kind of normal. Your parents would play music in the evening. It wasn't that we had the radio on all the time. We didn't really go to church, but I loved the song about Good King Wenceslas, which my father used to sing around Christmas time. And, and again, my grandfather was a composer, so it seemed to be math and music. music went together. Of course. So it took me a while to understand that. Did you have any musical interests in the way that, you know, your parents or your grandfather did? 
not really. I took piano lessons for a while, but it it was clear I wasn't going to be very good. Then I also took ballet, which was another huge exposure to music, and that was that I enjoyed. But when I went to London, stopped both of those and didn't resume them when I came back. And just thinking about, you know, because your father is English, what was it like getting that sense of this part of your culture and upbringing and, and history at that age? I mean, did you connect with it? It was my decision. I mean, it was totally my idea to go to England. And my parents were wonderful. They were sort of like, well, you know, if you really want to do this, we'll help you. It's your idea, but sure. So yeah, I was a actually a snotty little Anglophile. I thought England was much nicer than the US. And we'd been there a few times already visiting relatives and so forth. So it was my idea. They organized the trip, obviously, and I lived with friends of my father's. And it was great. I loved it, but I also discovered that the United States was pretty nice too. But yeah, I, I wanted to know more about England. I loved reading about my father. And so he grew up in Winchester, which is one of the beautiful old English towns with a long, long history and the cathedral. And I wanted to know more. And so I did. And what were you like as a kid, even before 13? You know, how were you spending your time? Just what were your interests? I was pretty present without leave even then. I mean, my interests were mostly reading. And my brother and I lived at the Institute. And so we were pretty disconnected, even from the other kids in school who lived in other parts of town. So we kind of fended for ourselves a lot in a nice way. And then every summer, our parents were divorced. By that time, we would go to California and stay with our mother. So we were pretty adventurous and exploring. And uh, we used to roam around the neighborhood. In fact, (laughs) it was uh, kind of at the end of our time as children that the Institute changed the rules permanently not to allow children in the main building during whatever. We spent a little too much time running up and down the stairs and in the elevators and so forth. Yeah, we loved exploring. And I rode my bike to school one day. I rode it in the rain and got so wet that they wanted to send me home. And I said, well, if you want me to go home, I'm just going to get on my bike again and get wet. (laughs) And I, I don't really remember, but I think they called my parents and they brought me some dry clothes. But our parents were European. They weren't kind of the helicopter parents. Mm, that we know today. Went off and sees today, yeah. Tell me about the Dyson Gazette. Oh, yeah. Well, so that was my first publication. I was, I think, eight or nine years old. And it was some of this audience may dimly remember something called carbon copies, where you put these sheets of paper with carbon powder on them to make multiple copies of something. So it was hand printed by me and it was reported interesting things going on in the Dyson family. Do you still have those? I found one or two of them recently. Yeah. So I I also moved recently and went through a lot of boxes and found some interesting stuff which I now have shipped to the Harvard Schlesinger Library, which is great because they want to scan all this stuff and they wrote and they said, please, please don't scan it yourself. We'll do it much better than you ever could. So they saved me a lot of work. So they're now there for posterity. Wonderful. So thinking about you writing from such a young age, and we'll talk about you as a journalist later on, but you said you assumed you'd be a novelist, not 
a techie. Yeah, very much. And then when I had a specific career thought, it was to be the Moscow bureau chief of the New York Times. And I also discovered that I wrote a fair amount of my diary the year I was in London in French, which I think was so that no one else in the family I was staying with could read it. (laughs) (laughs) And just going back to your parents, with two parents like that, I mean, it was unlikely you'd end up being anything other than extremely academic and brainy. Did you feel pressure to be smart or to be a scientist? No, that was the great thing. So my father was British and he himself went to Winchester. So he he loved us. But I do remember him once saying, don't pretend to be stupider than you are. But we did not talk physics at the dinner table. We, We talked, I don't know, what happened in school, what happened in the world. But he didn't like give us quizzes on famous scientists or anything. And that was really great. I mean, we, we really had a broad, he was interested in a lot of stuff and he had an interesting life that we'd hear about NASA and space travel and we'd hear about things that Oppenheimer did and news of the day and so forth and so on. But yeah, I mean, when I went to college, I did realize there was no way I was going to be remotely good at any of this stuff. And so I, dropped chemistry and physics and ended up majoring in economics because I thought that was probably the best way to do some good in the world. When you talked about some of those dinner table conversations, but also you would have people like Einstein or you know, other great scientists around the dinner table. Was that Were you conscious that that was special or unusual at the time? Um, not really. I mean, I'm not sure... Einstein ever came to us. We did go to his house a few times. But yeah, I mean, we sort of knew he was famous. But again, we didn't watch TV. And so we didn't have this once or twice my father was on TV and we'd go to the neighbors to watch him. But we weren't part of this fame culture that has arisen. Well, not even fame, just more remarkable minds, really. Yeah, I mean, we knew they were smart. But the Institute was full of smart people. And honestly, we were. Yeah, my father never got a PhD, and he was quite proud of that fact. And again, he was something of a rebel and a heretic, and I don't think we inherited it, but we learned it. The general rule was do what you want, and you're responsible for the consequences. So I I don't remember whether I bought it or somebody gave it to me, but I got a mouse or a couple of mouse that I had in a cage. And, you know, I was fine. Keep them in your room, feed them. But then one of the mice had baby mice and one of those little mice ended up in my parents' bed overnight. And my father came into my bedroom with this mouse that he had by the tail and said, no more teeny mice. I went to Morocco when I was 17 with my boyfriend. I did all kinds of non-scientific things. I became a journalist and I worked on Wall Street. And then the one time I took my parents to lunch to tell them I was about to spend six months in Russia training as a cosmonaut as backup to Charles Simone. And that was different. My father jumped up from the table and wasn't like, do that if you want. And I realized suddenly I was his firstborn. And here I was about to do the thing that had been his dream since he was a five-year-old. That must have been a wonderful moment. Yeah, it was amazing. And so he and my brother and my stepmother all came to Kazakhstan to watch the launch, which I was not on because I had only, a, if you like, a lottery ticket to actually go on the flight, but I'd spent six months training. 
And so I watched the flight, not with them because I was still in quarantine, but they were all there. And then afterwards we got together. So that was pretty special. Tell me, Esther, what was the first record that had a major impact? So the the one that, as you asked, it shaped who I was. Well, it was sort of the White Album. And that was the year that I was in Morocco when I was 17. And the song would be Glass Onion, which is you know kind of like a dim view of the truth, which keeps changing as you strip off the layers. I'd gone through one year in college. They had said to me very politely, you know, when we brought you here, we were so excited. You seemed like such a clever little girl, even though you were young. And the truth is you're not doing too well. So if you'd like to take some time off, we would welcome you back. We just wish you the very best. So I took half a year off and went to live in Morocco for two months of it. I spent the other part in England with my boyfriend who was in the Peace Corps. And we were pretty remote. I mean, this is, if you wanted to make a phone call, you had to go to some kind of central telephone office. Forget the internet. And one of the few things we had was the White Album. You know, I had left... Princeton, as I described, I had spent a year in college and sort of passed as a teenager. And at the same time, had not turned out to be a very good student and had a boyfriend. And here was a chance to see the rest of the world. So that, that was really a very important dividing time. And the White Album was key to that. Well, now we're going to take a listen to Glass Onion from the White Album by the Beatles. I told you about strawberry fields You know the place where nothing is real Well here's another place you can go And that was Glass Onion from the record The White Album by The Beatles And that was the album that Esther chose as really shaping her and having a major impact. You went to Harvard when you were 16, two years early in the late 60s to study economics. And then you spent most of your time at the Harvard Crimson, the university's daily newspaper. Was that really your love? Was that why you were? Yeah, totally. I very rarely went to class and it was a magical time. So you clearly loved the old world. I think you said about the Dyson Gazette, your technology at the time was your ballpoint pen and carbon paper. Um, And then you were working, spending a lot of time at the Harvard Crimson. When did your love for the digital world emerge? And how did you fall into tech as this accidental techie? It's like a lot of things. You love what you know. I mean, I love tech because I started using it. At the Crimson, I used to work with hot lead type, and that was that was really fun. Ultimately, I was at Forbes, and a couple of the companies I wrote about were tech companies. Then I joined a Wall Street firm where my job was to be, it was a small firm, so I got a big job, which was to be the research department and cover four or five stocks, of which most were tech stocks. And then there was this one company that it had raised more than $100 million, and it was still losing money and it hadn't shipped its first product and you know blah 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 but it ended up doing okay it was called federal express i mean it was fascinating and it used again it used math it did a lot of dynamic scheduling and it i learned about things like slack and optimization and if you're too optimized you can't deal with any disruption to the system which 
is unfortunately something we did not apply very well during COVID. And there were these tech companies there. So then I went on to get more interested in technology because it was clearly more interesting than oil companies or banks or fashion. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. Both my brother and I diverged very much from our father's path. My brother began to build boats and studied by darkas and history and so forth and wrote a number of books. And I kind of went off into the business slash tech world. And then we both reconverged you know, with, I mean, in the end, science was the underpinnings of everything that all three of us did. But at that time, at the time that you were figuring out what you were really interested in, you described yourself as a good liberal who thought the government was heartless because it didn't take care of its poor. Did you feel that studying economics would equip you with tools to change things? That was more or less the idea. I mean, it certainly seemed more useful than science, especially since I wasn't going to be very good at science. And I I wanted to do something useful. But at the same time, I mean, I never had a career. I like to say I've had more intentions than plans. And I very rarely make decisions. I, I discover them. Was it true that actually you learned more about economics by fact checking and writing for Forbes than at school? And what exactly did you learn during your time there? Well, I certainly learned more about business and how the world works. So at my interview for Forbes, they asked me, what's the difference between a stock and a bond? And I said, well, uh, I don't actually know, but I will certainly read the Wall Street Journal every day until I figure it out. And apparently that it's the same answer that was given 60 years earlier by the guy who later became the executive editor or something, some such story. So they gave me the job. But yeah, in my only economics classes, I never learned the difference between a stock and a bond. But I certainly learned that at Forbes, along with a lot of other. So here I was, a 21-year-old. So I was a fact checker, but if if I could come up with a good enough story idea, they'd let me off fact checking and I could go and write a story. So I interviewed the CEOs of American Airlines and American Motors, who offered me a pacer to test drive over the weekend, except I couldn't drive a car. I visited a coal mine in Wyoming and a biscuit factory in North Carolina. And ultimately, I went to Asia. They said, we won't pay your travel and we won't give you the time to do it. But if you want to use your vacation and pay your own way to go to Japan and Hong Kong and Taiwan and South Korea, we'll let you represent yourself as a Forbes reporter. So I went and did that. And... That was amazing. It ended up, I, I did get a cover story about the, the Japanese computer market, which I predicted would be successful, and their software market, which I predicted would not be, formed a lifelong love of Hong Kong. And uh, again, very present without leave. And just thinking about the fact checker's role today, uh, how do you feel about it? The role is great. It's just widely not applied. The New York Times, the New Yorker, a bunch of places still do it, but so many of them don't. And it's it's sad. There's the you know, the job of doing that. And then there's fact checking everybody should do for themselves, which is, does this make sense? Am I reading both sides of the story? Uh, what makes me think I should believe this? And is the person who's giving me the answer credible? All these things. And it's there's the religion of journalism, and then there are these churches of the media. 
and I still I'm still a faithful adherent of the true religion, but there's an awful lot of, if you like, fake and corrupt churches around. Do you feel having done that in the way that you did at that pivotal time, do you feel those skills are ones that have actually never left you? Oh yeah. I mean it's it's the basis of everything. I mean what we do at Wellville, we ask people awkward questions. What I do, you know, as a board member, I ask people awkward questions. I personally think it's the basis of a fulfilled life, but that may be going a little too far. On the other hand, yeah, I mean I think it's the best training for almost anything because in the end, you know, the fundamental question everybody should ask themselves about what they're doing is why am I doing this? What is my goal? Is, is what I'm doing likely to contribute to this goal? Why do I believe that? The stuff people are telling me, does it have any basis in fact? And then it just helps you do the right thing, avoid mistakes. I mean, make mistakes, but make new mistakes and learn from them and learn from others. It's fascinating because most people, if you're talking with them, if they're telling a story, you know, there are embellishments or things that have been added to give more flavor and color. And in a very normal human way, it, it happens with storytelling. And I, I noticed this with you, you're very fact orientated and it's very much like you want to, you don't want anything misrepresented. And I think that's a, it's a fascinating and rare quality really to have today. Well, thank you. As I interrupted you so many times <laughs> to fix the details, but yeah. I don't know. It's just really about serving the truth in a way and not needing yeah. things to be different than what they are. Well, that's right. I mean, one thing you learn as a fact checker is things are complicated. There are lots of room for disagreement, but it's called fact checker, not truth checker. And truth is more complicated, but you know, you can argue some facts are complicated too, but still there's a discipline you get from just how do I know that this really happened? And does it make sense? And okay, two people tell two different stories. What am I to make of that? And it's interesting because the digital age has both amplified the transparency aspect in a way, but also amplified the misinformation and noise. It's almost like it's paradoxically amplified both sides of that. Yes. Trying to get to the truth or trying to get to the facts. Yeah, it makes it much more difficult because there's so many versions out there and everybody can tell their own version. One of, the, one of my favorite movies is the movie Her where this guy falls in love with a robot and the fundamental unbridgeable gulf between them is the speed at which she lives. So she has 1,400 lovers or some number like that. Better check that fact. <laughs> and he has time only for her, but he can't live with the fact that she has time for 1,400 lovers. And in a sense, the digital world is 1,400 lovers or stories or truths or so much going on so fast, it's beyond human comprehension. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But looking back at your time on Wall Street, your five years as an analyst, what did you learn that most stayed with you during that period? I learned how people think. I learned that fundamentally I didn't like the culture. I thought when I moved from Forbes, where I was writing stories, I would move to Wall Street, where I would make important fact-based decisions and discovered really I was just telling stories about stocks to clients of the uh, two banks I worked for. So, you know, I learned a lot and I learned what I didn't really want to do. And 
ended up going back into the writing business, joining the newsletter of a guy called Ben Rosen, who was writing a newsletter about the emerging personal computer market. And that's what I did for the next 25 years. I ran his PC forum, which had been the personal computer forum. And by the end of the 25 years, we had very subtly renamed it the PC forum, Platforms for Communication Forum. And yeah, talking about your newsletter, Release 1.0, and then also your conference PC Forum, what then made you want to play in the marketplace rather than write about it? The newsletter and the conference started at a time when you could get all these guys, and they were mostly guys in one room at the same time. You'd get on an airplane in 1982, and somebody would be carrying this big compact personal computer. And say, oh my gosh, there's this computer over there. And yeah, it was kind of exciting. You were part of a very special new industry. And you know, at some point it became widespread. There were bunches of conferences. It was hard to get everybody collected. And there was, a, I don't like doing things that are redundant. And there were some other very good conferences. Keras, which is probably the, the best and techonomy and so forth. And so it wasn't any longer breaking new ground. And my partner, Daphne, and I decided we wanted to sell it. And our last PC forum was the best. You know, that's the time to finish, not, not after you've hit the peak and started falling. And so that made me very happy because every year before that, I had thought, well, next year I'll do it better. And this year, it wasn't that it was perfect, but I felt, you know, this is as good as it's going to get. And time to move on. So that was, we, I think we sold it in 2004 or five, and then I stuck around for two years and then left in 2007. And pretty soon after that, you know, I was doing a lot of things. I mean, I started investing in Russia. I didn't invest in the U.S. because it was a conflict of interest. And I'd started investing. I was on a few boards. And then this opportunity, which had existed before, but suddenly it became interesting to train in Russia as a cosmonaut came up. I realized that I was doing too many things and I had no real central purpose. And I'd been paying more attention to this issue of health versus healthcare. I interviewed this guy called Charlie Silver who had a website called Real Age, which basically would ask you, you know, how well do you sleep? Do you exercise? Do you live alone? Do you have family members that you love? Do you have friends that support you? And it would give you your quote, Real Age. Its business model was selling vitamin supplements. And I remember thinking that it still had done more good for more people's health, probably the most doctors ever did. And I, I mean that politely, but it wouldn't quite work with a fact check, but it's a nice idea. Anyway, what, what intrigued me, he sold the business to Hearst and then to, they sold it to Sharecare. But he had sold his first business to Jiffy Lube. You know who that is? Yes. Yeah, they do oil changes for cars. And as you said right at the beginning of our discussion, you know, maintenance, that's why don't we do better maintenance instead of waiting until the thing collapses? So I thought somebody should do a, something like the X Prize for health instead of for health care. I was going to give a talk somewhere, not a long talk, but I realized that's a terrible talk. I'm going to announce that I'm going to do it because that's really useful as opposed to somebody should do it. And that's what happened. And on May 13th, 2013, 
You And did you already have the idea for Wellville? No, no. So the next thing I did was I organized four brainstorming sessions with whoever wanted to come. I think one in New York, one in D.C., and two in California, one in San Francisco and one in you know, down in San Jose or something. So I basically invited anybody I knew and said, you know, send anyone else you know who'd be good. This guy from Cigna showed up, and most of my friends and I, we were in jeans and he was wearing you know some slacks and some sort of casualist jacket but he asked really smart questions what are you going to measure how are you going to find the communities because the idea was to find communities and focus on the community level rather than through the healthcare system and i took him to lunch and he asked even more smart questions so then i hired him and he's our ceo so rick brush and now just tell us, because it is such a wonderful initiative that I have told so many people about, and I actually didn't realize it was a 10-year project. No, it started out as five. It changed. So just tell us in layman's terms, you know, what is Wellville? Right. What are you doing and what is the, the intent behind it and why now 10 years? Yeah, just explain it for us. So it started out as Hiccup. Health Initiative Coordinating Council, and because I was on the board of the meetup, I thought, well, you know, Hiccup, much more interesting than Hick. And the idea was to not have some fancy name, but Rick, almost one of the first things he did was he said, you know, that name, I'm not sure it's really that great. I said, I think you're right. Come up with something better. And he did, which was Wellville. So five years, five communities, five metrics. Communities had to be under 100,000 people. Rick came up with sort of the more formal wording. There had to be a cross-sector collaborative that would be the entity that we'd be communicating with, you know, various other things, and they had to send in an application form, not just a little letter saying they were interested with huge amounts of data about what they had done and what they wanted to do and what their goals were and what their metrics were and so forth. And we thought we'd pick five and get them all together in a room and decide on the five metrics and then we'd do something for five years and then maybe there'd be a prize if we could figure that one out. So to our amazement, we got 42 applications. And in the summer of 2014, Rick and I visited 10 of the places in order to pick not the best five, but the best group of five because we wanted it, it was sort of the idea we've learned more from places that were different. To have a real cross-section. Yeah, and you learn more that way. And it was certainly not going to be a random, randomized controlled trial because there's just too many factors. But we wanted it to at least, I mean, we had no idea what to expect. We knew it would be very educational. We would learn something. And we also didn't want to be too constrained. And by this time, I had made enough money in the stock market, including ironically in Facebook, that I could fund the thing for five years. And anyway, we found five communities, which were Clatsop County, Oregon, northwest of Portland, Lake County, California, north of Calif north of San Francisco. All the rich guys go to Napa Valley and about an hour or two north of that, you get to Lake County, which has some of the worst health metrics in California, but also the best air and definitely the most beautiful, biggest lake that's entirely within California. Lake Tahoe is bigger, but they share it with Nevada. Uh, Muskegon, Michigan, which actually had 180,000 people, but they created this subset called Greater Muskegon, which 
ironically had only 80,000 people. Anyway, uh, this is the thing. If you don't raise money from a, a philanthropy or something, you can make decisions like that without going back to the people who gave you the grant and getting permission and you know, rewriting your grant. Uh, Niagara Falls, which ended up not working out and eventually got replaced by North Hartford and Spartanburg, South Carolina. So we all gathered in Tampa in uh, 2014, sort of as the kickoff for what began in 2015 and will end in December 2024. So that was the beginning. And after a few years, it became clear that this thing was working and interesting, but it really needed more than five years. And I felt comfortable that I could fund it for the 10 years and that the team felt comfortable that they were willing to stick around for 10 years. So it turned into a 10 year project. And basically we work in the communities. We don't live there, so we don't want anybody's job. And as I said before, we ask them awkward questions, we give them advice, and we don't pay them to do things they think are stupid. We do try to help them get funding for things they do want to do. And also really it's about building sustainable solutions to deal with root problems rather than quick fixes. Yes, to avoid root problems. I mean, it's like the wording still doesn't really exist because when you talk about prosperity and economic development. You don't talk about poverty prevention. You talk about economic development. You talk about resilience and growth and productivity. And we don't really have the same kinds of positive words for health other than health itself, but people keep you know, calling it healthcare. But it's, it's the asset of health, the resilience, the capacity, the ability to, if you walk 20 miles and you're sick, it will make you sicker. But if you walk 20 miles and you're healthy, it will make you healthier. And it's, it's that health that treats stress as basically exercise rather than as destruction. And how effective do you feel it's been in this now halfway period? So the metrics, some of them will be much better. Some won't be. There's obesity. There's mental health issues. There's the ones that I really like are things like high school graduation rates, not college. And basically survey the real estate guys and ask, do people want to live in this place? Are they moving in or out? If you ask a local real estate person what's happening, I think you'll probably get one of the better indications of what's happening in a community. You know, and then there's crime rates and income levels and, and so forth. In each of the communities, there are a lot of good things happening, but it's probably more on the level of stories. And the stories we love are ones where the community is empowered and builds things it wants that they own. So we're now beginning, and in a sense, this conversation is part of it, beginning to think, well, how do we get the story out? Because our ultimate goal is to scale, not by, oh, find more money and put it into Wellville 2.0, but spread the story and help other communities copy us, not by hiring us, but by asking themselves the same questions, by making it an open source model. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like this whole thing. I mean, fundamentally, what I've learned is most of what ails us is short term thinking, whether it's short term, I need the answer right now, but please don't make it complicated. I need to feel better right now. Give me a till. Addiction to food, to drugs, to any kind of short term relief. 
people think addiction is about pleasure, but it's it's really about relief of the craving. And people have cravings for gambling, for this excitement, for the dopamine, for short-term solutions. Businesses you know, used to want to run a business with profits, but now Wall Street and especially Silicon Valley, they want they basically want to create businesses to sell them, not to run them. And so if you can create a business that's losing money, but you can sell it for five times or 20 times what you put into it, you're happy. So there's, they aren't thinking about long-term solutions. They're not thinking about the next generation. Little community organizations have become addicted to short-term grants rather than to building sustainable institutions. So that's our mission, to help people think longer term and to think across racial, economic, those divisions and work on behalf of the entire community. Don't don't assume that if you and your family are okay, you still don't want to live in a community where other people are not. Oh, I think that really explains it. And bringing in the new Silicon Valley model of exits rather than profits and well, really how everything is geared toward that short-termist quick fix in the moment thinking and I want it now I need it now no you need to think happiness is not something sustainable but satisfaction and purpose are and so you, you need to have some purpose and then you know you can feel good for the long term one of the best things ever said about this I think is uh, Zephyr Teachout writer lawyer whatever in her book breaks them up she says well Profits in a business are like sex in a marriage. They're, and this is not an exact quote, but they're they're essential to the enterprise. You know, profits keep the business alive; they let it grow. Sex creates children, you know, sustains the marriage, whatever. But more profits and more sex don't necessarily make a business or a marriage better. And they are both so true. And somehow, because we keep thinking of money as something that has to be entirely rational and not filled with purpose but we can understand it when we talk about marriage it's a little harder to understand it when we talk about business and business without purpose is not a very exciting or sustainable business either when we also think that growth always equals better more growth is better yes (laughs) yeah until we start complaining about obesity there's also i have this notion of information diabetes where you consume too much sugary information and that destroys your metabolism. Actually, to that point, at the end of the 90s, you said about multimedia and its barrage on the senses. I think it's bad for our minds. Images may sell, but they don't enlighten. We're in danger of getting a society where people don't bother to think or assess consequences. It's happening not only in consumer society, but in politics. People listen to sound bites instead of assessing a candidate's overall policies. How do you feel about that statement today? I feel, oh my gosh, I don't remember saying that, but yes, indeed. (laughs) Where is that from? That's great. You've done your homework. Esther is something I talk about all the time and for you to have called it out 30 years ago and where we are now with this just constant bombardment. I mean, Sachs talked about it, just how having all this stimuli hitting our our sensory systems, it's fatiguing, it's overwhelming and everything has become part of, of the noise, really. It's like we are unable to distinguish what is true or what is fact from what is just a lot of sort of confusion and misinformation. It's the same with journalism or art or music or many of the fields. And they've also become so devalued because 
we have all this access without value, you know, and it's a real conundrum in a way. Yeah. And when I get really pessimistic, I, I wonder, is this why we've seen no other intelligent life outside the earth? Is it because when a civilization becomes sufficiently advanced, it, it becomes so good at meeting its short-term needs that it loses long-term perspective and eventually kills itself off? And that sounds pretty grim. And in my work, I just soldier on anyway, because you're clearly not going to make things better if you're pessimistic. But when I think scientifically, you know, it, it seems like a plausible theory, which is depressing. Now, speaking of extraterrestrial life, what is the music you would send into space? So I picked Claire de Lune because I didn't really know what to pick. There's nothing that explains us all. But, and so Claire de Lune is the music itself, I mean, precisely because it has no words. It's just very haunting. And, you know, I hope that somehow the extraterrestrial intelligences that pick it up would also find it haunting. I don't know. I mean, that's the big question. Are we are we anomalies or do you feel like the rules of mathematics and grammar transcend our nature? Is it going to be as meaningful to those other intelligent beasts as it is to us? Wonderful. Well, now we're going to take a listen to Claire de Lune by Claude Debussy.
And that was Claire de Lune by Claude Debussy. And that was the music that Esther would send into space. Um, because for you, in addition to it being wordless, does the music contain a special feeling or sentiment for you? It's not happy or joyous, but it's it's mellow and thoughtful. And of course, it refers to the moon. And I look at the moon and it cheers me up. I mean, somehow it's uh, it just does. There's a bunch of reasons, but the feeling is it doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make me sad. It just It's like the way you would describe meditation. It just makes you conscious of the world around you and puts things into perspective or something like that. I just find it, as I said, haunting. And how do you feel about the world around you at the moment? And what is your particular perspective? Well, again, intellectually, I'm really disturbed at everything that's going on. Emotionally, I'm, I'm engaged in doing stuff I think is useful. And you know, I mean, it's, it's like what you said about liking New York. I fell in love with Muskegon, not because I picked it, but because I ended up getting to know it. And I've gotten to know this world. I mean, in, in a way that I'm very privileged. I've spent huge amounts of time all over, not yet Antarctica, but you know, compared to your average American or probably anybody that doesn't work for an airline or shipping company, Asia, Russia, Africa, Latin America, then not quite so much Europe. And of course, the US, I speak a bunch of languages. And I haven't just gone to museums. I've been to dental clinics and visited people's homes. I went to an orphanage in Azerbaijan with the woman who grew up there. And in the end, I've learned a lot more about the United States from looking at it from outside than I've ever learned about any of these other places. Mm. But but I really feel that I know the world in a way many people simply don't have the chance to. And then I've seen places like Hong Kong and Russia that are now what I knew has gone, the, the hope and the, some of the best things about them have been destroyed. And that's incredibly sad, you know, because... One part of me wants to think things are always getting better. You know, things are varied, but net and net things are always getting better. And in Hong Kong and Russia and, you know, now there's Hungary and Syria. No, things are not getting better. And that's just a very sad reality. But it's worth fighting. Yes. From my perspective, a big part of my work and focus right now is is environmental activism and awareness and everything that's going on with the planet and all of the species and sentient beings on this planet. I heard you say something about that it's it's no use just saving the planet. We've got to save the people on it. And that's really what your focus is. Yes. I mean, I love the work people are doing on the environment, but I also kind of feel I don't want to be grandiose and take on everything. And saving the planets, forgive me, kind of useless if we don't save the people as well. You know, and if they sometimes someday get replaced by robots that are better than humans, then bless the robots. But right now I want to save the people. And why do you think, we've talked about root problems, why do you think we as a human species are so bad at dealing with root problems? And if there was one root problem that you would most like to fix, literally or abstractly, what would it be? I mean, why we're so bad is because evolution has basically selected people who are good at surviving in the short term, because if you don't survive in the short term, you have no chance at the long term. Smart. But those habits don't really make you very good at thinking about the long term. And we've gotten so good at satisfying our short term desires in ways that are harmful to us that we are becoming 
they're increasingly unfocused or unable to think effectively about the long-term and have long-term purpose. I don't know about the root cause, but if I were Mackenzie Scott, I would probably provide for mandatory parent training throughout the U.S. And of course, that would be a political disaster. But something along those lines, we need to train people to be better parents and raise children who are purposeful, focused on the future. I mean, not not in a way that's dismissive of the present. I mean, people deserve joy and it's not a world without joy or pleasure, but it is a world where you have purpose and then you can deal with all these other problems. Say we get raised or um, not really raised maybe in, in the right way and a lot of the time that's because parents just don't have the right conditions to do so, but then you know that creates a lot of insecurity and insecurity yeah. is often what then links to addictions or short-term reliefs. Or Yes, I mean, it's not, it's not the parents' fault. It's the parents, 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 parents fault handed on by evolution. And they need adequate incomes. They need education, not just parent training. I mean, what we're trying to do in Wellville is help the parents become better parents by helping them get jobs, get educated and so forth. And then the hope is that the next generation will be able to carry it forward more effectively. But it's it's a big cultural, social, economic equity the racial history of the U.S. Is, is part of this problem and the ignorance of it. Let's not sit around blaming people, but let's indeed fix the problems. And your lifespan, your education, all these things shouldn't depend on whether you're black or part of the country you're born in. You know, schools should be paid for centrally. They should be run locally, obviously, but you, know, you shouldn't grow up in a poor district and be condemned to a, a crappy education. If a building is built on shitty foundations, the structure is unstable from the beginning. Right. This is not easy to fix. It's not just the money being spent effectively. It's the question of can the community rise to the challenge? But what we're discovering and showing is that they probably have a better understanding of what they need than a bunch of well-meaning philanthropists who simply don't understand the reality of people's lives. At the same time, it shouldn't be philanthropists. It should be collective investment in a country where everybody has a good chance of fulfilling their potential. You know, we don't want everybody to be Einstein or Bill Gates, but we do want everyone to turn 10 years old without having been damaged already by you know, bad food, bad education, bad living conditions, and you know, the prevalence of addiction, crime, and other problems around them. What is the song that you would have play at your memorial, Esther? So that that goes to this long-term thinking. It's As I mentioned, my grandfather, Sir George Dyson, was a composer. And the Canterbury Pilgrims was probably his best-known work. So I tried to pick one, which was the nun's story, uh, partly because I'm certainly not a nun, but I don't have children, so it sort of seemed most appropriate. Wonderful. And now we're going to take a listen to The Canterbury Pilgrims, The Nun by Sir George Dyson.
And that was the Canterbury Pilgrims, the nun by Sir George Dyson, Esther's grandfather, and that was the song that she would have play at her memorial. Were you close with your grandfather? There's something beautiful about, you know, the cycles of life. I visited Winchester a few times, but close is probably not. Yeah, you know, he was an old man with a British accent and a little scary and gruff, but I was excited to see him. What I do know is... I mean, I know his story, which is he grew up in the north of England, very poor, one of 12 children. And his mother had gone to work in a cotton factory when she was eight. And his aunt had gone to work same place when she was four. And they were running around picking up bobbins and you know, probably bringing tea to the overseers and stuff like that. So, you know, Dyson, Dyer's son, north of England. And then somehow he got lucky and he learned to play the organ. So he became the church organist and kind of got a little more attention. And ultimately he bought a bicycle, which, which is why I love this bicycle for the mind. So because of this bicycle, most people, basically you went as far as you could walk in a day and you know, stay at a relative's house and then walk back the next day or something. But with a bicycle, you could actually travel around. And he took this bicycle and ultimately traveled around Europe. And, you know, long story, but eventually made his way, became head of the Royal College of Music in London, and the family stayed in London during the war. And then he became the music master of Winchester College and so forth. That was my grandfather. Yeah, he was wonderful. He was also kind of scary to my father. I mean, his, his students loved him, but he was pretty fierce to his kids. And you know, I'm sure that's where my father got, don't pretend to be stupider than you are. <laughs> and uh, I mean, in the end, Freeman left England. I mean, this is my interpretation, but to get away from his parents and to sort of strike out on his own. My aunt stayed and became an almoner for the NHS, which has its resonance in Wellville because the job of an almoner, which is now called a medico-social worker, was basically to work in the community and, and help people stay healthy. And my aunt's specialty, she was unmarried, was taking care of unmarried moms. So basically teenage girls who somehow gotten pregnant. And in those days, that was not the thing to do. When she died, several kids of those unmarried moms came to her funeral in Winchester. So again, I have a, a strong sense of my heritage. Mm. And I have 16 nieces and nephews, and now a bunch of them are having children themselves. So also a strong sense of the future. There's also a nice resonance with you choosing the nun's story as well now, after you shared that. Yes. Um, 
And how do you feel about death? I mean, first of all, I don't think it's a tragedy. I think an early death is a tragedy, a painful death. But it, the concept doesn't offend me. I don't. I, there are people now in Silicon Valley, you know, let's defeat death. It's like death is part of evolution and it leads to better results over time, despite what I said about short-term thinking. More specifically, what I think about death is uh, 30 or 40 years ago, there was this TV show called Golden Girls. Of course. Yeah, and I never watched it, or maybe I watched one, but I knew what it was. And I had this dream that I was one of the Golden Girls. So I was like 20 or 30, I was young. And it was a Saturday in the dream. And I knew somehow I was going to die that evening. Somebody had sent me a you know, a care package or something, and it had a lot of saltines in it. And I didn't like saltines, and I was kind of annoyed. And I said to myself, "Well, Esther, you know, if, if all you really care about is saltines, you know, clearly, it is time to go because you're you're not worried about anything important." And the girls came in and said, "Oh, you want to go out dancing with us tonight?" And I said, "No, thank you. I, I'll just stay here." And I felt very happy and calm. I was about to die. I had done what I wanted to do. I no longer really cared about much except for the saltines, and it was time. And it was just a very comforting dream. You know, it wasn't that I wanted to die, and it wasn't that I was ready to die, but it was sort of, well, this is what it should be like when you go, except not too soon. And now when people ask me, I tell them my goal is to die on Mars, but not too soon. And you know, to me, Mars represents sort of the golden girls. Yeah, I'm done on Earth. I've done what I wanted to do. Now I'll take a spaceship to Mars and I'll bring along a lot of music and audiobooks. I don't want to die before I'm ready, but I'm happy with the concept. And what do you feel life is about? Life is about passing it along. You know, it's it's like a relay race. It's not like a marathon that ends. It's it's more like see what you've got and See if you can make it better for the next people. I always used to say, if, if I was a maid, I would ask for a dirty room. And I would say, the world right now is a pretty dirty room. But if I can tidy it up slightly, I'll feel happy. You very sadly lost Freeman February 28th, 2020. How has that been? Well, certain things happen. I think, oh, I got to tell Freeman. And then I realized, no, he's not there. I mean, again, I'm I'm really sorry. At the same time, I don't consider it a, and injustice, the reality is COVID would have been very difficult for him because he was already, his mind was great, but he wasn't, he wasn't in perfect health. He was getting transfusions and just healthcare during COVID was a mess. So it's like with myself, I'd rather celebrate the life than mourn the death. And do you feel death is a full stop? I don't know. And I'm eager to find out. <laughs> well, not, not impatient to find out, but <laughs> yeah. I am curious. Do you know what your epitaph would be? By any chance, would it be always make new mistakes or would it be something else? It would be she wasn't done yet. I mean, even though I, I want to go with everything finished, I don't think I will. And what is the album that you would like to pass on to the next generation, Esther, and why? This one is really unanswerable, but the answer I give is when I'm 64 is simply because it's about getting old, but still being loved. And, you know, ages, I'm beyond 64 already. It's a cheerful one. We're going to hear that in just a few moments after the last couple of questions. 
you know, you said about your father that he he always said to you to be as smart as you are. Did you always feel his and your mother's support? And was that important for you to go off and do all the things that you have done? I wrote a coda for a book about him that's coming out in a few months. And his influence was huge. And it wasn't, he told me to do this, he told me to do that. His influence was the example of always being curious and Again, going out and trying things, learning. I learned Russian because of him. I got interested in space because of him. You know, to my mind, he was the perfect parent. He, again, he gave us intrinsic motivation rather than what he thought we should do. He let us explore. And he he asked good questions, but he didn't try to guide us or manipulate us. And at the same time, I mean, it was a wonderful childhood. He worked half a mile from home at the Institute. It was down a hill. In the winter, he would take our sled if it was snowing. And if we wanted to go sledding after school, we'd go to his office to pick up our sled. And then we'd see his blackboard with all these interesting things on it. But he was always home for dinner. And it was, it was just a, such an amazing life where we were encouraged to explore, whether it was reading books or bicycling around Princeton or, you know, again, going to England when I was 13. And I know, you know, you mentioned you don't have kids, but in that spirit of thinking what one passes on, do you feel, in addition to passing on that record for the next generation, that having a parent like Freeman, um, who really allowed you that free reign in a way and also encouraged that curiosity, it's almost like you had a perfect parental model that you then realize, you know, very few get to experience and so that's almost part of your desire for mandatory parent training. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's sort of a joke because it's it's not something you can train very well, but you can encourage it and you can set examples. It's like when you build an AI, they talk about training AIs and they forget that they're also training infants all the time. And you can train an AI or an infant to be adventurous and curious and resilience and ask questions, whatever. And I just wish, I wish there was more of that. And you're on the board of the long now, which is a, a concept, a philosophy I talk about often. How do you think, and we've sort of touched upon it, but how do you think we break this increasingly short-termist bubble that we're in? Um, even in, say, a daily way, is there anything on like a a practical, tangible level that you think can help? Talking about it, giving examples, creating heroes. We, yeah, we should do something called Heroes of the Long Now. Think about food. I, I invested in this company that had a, you know, it was basically a platform for dietitians and nutritionists to reach clients. And it was nice. It wasn't that different from any of the other ones. And the founder, bless him, learned these things aren't working. And some crazy percentage of Americans are on a diet or think they should be on a diet. Or, and at the same time, the diet is all about rules and they feel guilty about food and then they eat too much and they feel more guilty. So he's now changed it. The company's called eatmyway.com and you can find it, blah, blah, blah. But he's changed it to be basically couples counseling for you and food. And in a sense, we need couples counseling for food. We need it for money. We need we need people to interact with the world around them and with their own desires in a way that's 
know, more intelligent and thoughtful and less racked with guilt. And these are the rules as opposed to these are the principles I want to live by as opposed to you know, 29 calories or 10% of your income needs to go to this or that. It's, it's got to be more what will make you happy, what will make you happy in the long run, not just in the short run. You know, it's just like a marriage. It's not supposed to be happy every day. And you don't find friends. You make friends. And making friends, again, is, is about a relationship. And people need to understand how to repair their relationship with, with all these things that they deal with, whether it's their children or their spouses or their food or their money or their possessions. And they need to understand what makes them truly happy long-term versus what gives them usually pleasure in the beginning and then just becomes a source of craving. Because winning isn't the point. It's what you hand on to the next person. When it sounds like what you're saying as well is that people need to take a more active rather than passive role in a lot of those choices and a lot of the a lot of the power that they do have, which I you know, I think often people feel very powerless, but we are actually more powerful a lot of the time than we realize. It is difficult, say, looking at food when you've got an industry that is so built around hooking you to crap. Manipulating. <laughs> yes. Yes. And right. so when it when it becomes impossible, even being so aware and conscious to find anything without sugar. You know, like I found, I was getting soup the other day from a supermarket and had a bite of it. And it was like, why is this sweet? And of course it had sugar in. So it makes it... Was it tomato soup? I think it was even a minestrone. I mean, something that oh was... Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Yeah. And so you think, well, if I'm aware of that and it's still difficult... You know, and I also have the privilege of being able to choose what kind of food I'm buying to a degree. You know, how yeah. how shitty is it for people that whether it's sugar or it's some other crappy ingredient that is addictive in- intrinsically, it becomes a very hard battle, you know, for a lot of people to to fight. Yeah. And if you didn't have the money, once you'd bought it, you wouldn't want to throw it away. And Esther, what is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the air choices? I mean, in the end, it's curiosity. It's learning. It's being present without leave. Don't wait to be invited or paid. Do what you want to do. Not in a don't barge into people's homes or something, but just go where it's interesting and and get off the beaten path and see what you find. Well, also with your choices, it could literally be the Beatles. Oh, yes. (laughs) The Beatles and, and your grandpapa. Yeah, I'm a child of my time. And certainly the music is all pretty old. Well, I also think the Beatles are responsible for such a huge percentage of the greatest music of all time. So They are. It is amazing. But what I love about what you said, and you said it at the beginning, I think it's a really important sentiment to end on in a way, is that, you know, if you see something that needs to be done, do it yourself. I mean, that's really what a lot of what you've done is is about. And, you know, what connected you and I, which was the Music Dementia Project, it was exactly that. I'd seen something that didn't quite add up that I felt needed exploring. Um, and I did it. And then it ended up, you know, me working with all these top neuroscientists and then the project turning into a charity and now actively getting music in all care homes in the UK. And so, yeah, I feel like there's so much power in if you see something needs to be done, just rolling up your sleeves and doing it if you can. Yes. And I mean, somewhere there is this notion of resonance in music and, and cadence and 
there's something special about music. It does somehow engage our emotions, not just our, our minds. Well, music, even on a neurological level, imprints on the brain deeper than any other human experience. And it actually takes up more parts of the brain. It activates more parts of the brain than anything else. So mm. we're really more of a musical species, even if we don't think of ourselves individually as being musical, than we are a language species or anything else. Yeah. Well, I think it's because, you know, time is one of the dimensions. And in a sense, it's the only one that, I don't know how to say this exactly, but that can invade you. I mean, you know, other things you look at, but they're outside of you and music comes inside and its time dimension persists when it's inside you. Well, and it's all pervasive. You don't actually need to do anything. It's not like you need to look at anything or you need right. to stand up and dance or, you know, it's not like you need to take an action. You can just absorb it. And that's what I found and witnessed to be so incredible when doing that project. Because people, even people who were virtually catatonic could then be roused into dancing via the music. Which is pretty wonderful. And thinking about technology today, big question, but what do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost? And there is one quote I'd like to bring in that you said about Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. In the 80s, Silicon Valley was, in your mind, the home of untrammeled commercialism, economic freedom, and technical innovation. So with that sort of also in the back of your mind, where do you feel we are with technology today? It's still true, and unfortunately, it's gone too far. It's become addicted to that rather than sustained by it. So that's that's the second question. And the first was, oh, well, what we've gained is some really wonderful new technology. What we've lost is, again, our, our ability to think long-term. We've become so distracted by short-term engagement, promises, addiction. We've lost our attention span. And I think also that sense of value, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, but what I feel is I think we've lost the ability to discern what really matters to us. Because actually a lot of them are very simple. It's simple th experiences that make us present. Well, love and people, and I think I called it information diabetes. You have too much sugar and it ruins your metabolism and your ability to process sugar. And, and you get too much of this short-term junk and it also ruins your ability to process it properly and the junk kind of edges out the valuable stuff. Last question, what do you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? You know, I hope someday a bunch of people, especially in the five well-will communities and beyond, whose parents did a slightly better job than they might have otherwise, who are now living happy, contented and meaningful lives. And what would be your dream for Wellville beyond the 10-year project? That it has real influence. Not that it become a famous brand name, but that the things it does inspire other people to do similar things and to have the same sense of empowerment and agency. Wonderful, Esther. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we're going to end now with When I'm 64 by the Beatles from the record Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, but yes, Esther, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. This was wonderful. When I'm 64.
many years from now Will you still be saying 